Hello and welcome to this edition of UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, a weekly review of international events making the headlines at the United Nations. Thanks for taking an interest in the UN. I'm your host, Daniel Johnson, and in today's show, we'll hear condemnation from the UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet about the insightful rhetoric surrounding the chaotic mob scenes in the US Capitol building. A warning from the UN Refugee Agency about mass displacement linked to election violence in the Central African Republic. And welcome words from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, on the declaration by Gulf states looking to heal the regional rift with Qatar. That's all in the news bulletin coming right up. We'll also be hearing from our regular guest, Solange Perrotegui-Cortez, who's going to be treating us to a rendition of one of the longest words in the indigenous Aymara language from Latin America. Find out why in a bit. But before that, in a week that's seen astonishing scenes surrounding the scheduled confirmation of President-elect Joe Biden in Washington and continuing infections from COVID-19, it's a fair question perhaps to ask whether the world is heading in the right direction and what the UN's role should be in it. To help answer those questions, I spoke to Fabrizio Hofschild, UN Undersecretary-General. He's responsible for organising the first post-COVID global survey on people's priorities as part of activities marking the UN's 75th year. With the findings in from more than 1.5 million respondents from 195 countries, Mr Hoshield highlighted the impact of the pandemic on people's responses and he explained what concrete action in terms of international cooperation will be essential in the coming years. I think one of the great paradoxes is COVID on the one hand induced this sense of isolation, this quarantine. People were more restricted in their movements than ever, than at any other time in 75 years. At the same time, the isolation actually induced a rise in global consciousness. And we saw that in the sense that there was a huge uptick in responses to our survey after COVID struck. That was one surprise. The second big surprise was the level of support there is for international cooperation. If you just follow headlines, if you just follow social media feeds, if you just listen to the debates in the Security Council, in the General Assembly in New York, you get the sense of a very fragmented, very contentious, very polarized world. But if you look at the responses to our questions across generations, across political divides, there is a remarkable set of common interests. And the immediate common interest post-COVID, and this was the first ever global survey on people's priorities for post-COVID reconstruction, are better access to affordable health care, better access to quality education, better access to water and sanitation. And that against a backdrop, and this was the second main priority, that against a backdrop of the revelation and exacerbation of huge inequalities. So the second demand was a call for greater solidarity, a call for better support to the hardest hit countries and the hardest hit communities. So in some ways, sorry to interrupt there Fabrizio, but isn't there this age-old conflict between 
immediate humanitarian needs or immediate people's needs first, if you like, and I'm talking to you as a UN humanitarian perhaps first and foremost, and the need for sustainable solutions. It seems that we've been dancing around this issue for decades, and shouldn't we as the UN be proposing some radical changes to fix today's most pressing problems? I think it's very striking that despite this global health pandemic that inevitably was foremost on most people's mind, when we ask people about their long-term priorities, their biggest fear and their biggest concern remains the impact of climate change and remains the impact of species depletion and of pollution on our environment. So I think if we have to sum up what was hugely complex findings, if we have to sum them up, what people are looking for are both immediate action on improved access to service, immediate action on constructing an economy that is more inclusive and promotes less inequalities, but they're also looking for greater action on environmental destruction and greater action on climate change. Right. So it's really critical then that the United Nations, that we deliver what people want. How are we going to, as we the peoples of the United Nations, achieve what the organisation was set up to do to promote peace, enable people's universal rights and also leave nobody behind? Concretely, how are we going to do that? Because I think that's what potential critics would say of this kind of exercise. Well, first, I think we have to be a little bit humble. It's not the United Nations, and the United Nations was not set up to replace a governance. It was set up to support national actors in areas where international cooperation is likely to contribute to the better global good, and in particular, when global goods like global peace and security, like global respect for human rights, like action against climate change, where global public goods are threatened. I mean, the provision of basic services is first and foremost the responsibility of national authorities. The United Nations can share best practices. I think the unique role of the United Nations is facilitating the responsible management of global public goods. Global public health in an interconnected, interdependent world is a public good, and yet the mechanisms we have in place seem to need greater empowerment to better deal with the threats to global health. I think what's in demand is a UN that is more inclusive, that those who have their hands on the levers of power, the diversity of actors in the world is very different from what it was 75 years ago. And if the UN is to be relevant, it has to better reflect the diversity of stakeholders. And then it has to grow more focused and more effective in addressing what are truly global public goods. And I think the Secretary General will be coming back on the demand of the Security Council, a demand that was nurtured by our work with very concrete proposals on how to go about that. But the key thing will be ensuring that there's the, the, the public will to put those recommendations of the Secretary-General into action. Yes, so really that brings me to my final question, and it was whether the UN itself has a bright future in addition to multilateralism. And I should say that we're speaking a day after supporters of President Trump stormed the US Capitol building, temporarily halting the disputed certification of November's presidential election result. In addition to that astonishing development, we've also had, of course, the whole COVID ordeal that you've spoken about and all sorts of toxic disinformation 
and distrust online of institutions and indeed vaccines. And just with that in mind, Fabrizio, I mentioned the calls for reform that were thrown up by the survey. Could you maybe touch on those, please? One of the things we have to be very mindful of, and I say this as somebody who served the UN across all continents and often in conflict areas all my life, is two findings. One, that the UN has very broad support. There's no question of that. And it's seen even as more important moving forward than it was over the past 75 years. But at the same time, the UN is seen as rather remote and people are not, 50% of the people are not aware of how it's had any direct impact in their lives. So the UN is supported, but we're also seen as a little bit out of touch and a little bit remote. And I think one of the things, one of the challenges uh, for all of us is, is, is to get the UN out on the streets. I mean, the UN cannot be seen as something locked behind compounds with massive fences where an elite of diplomats, an elite of international public servants discuss the problems of the world among themselves. We have to get out of our white land cruisers in the field and we have to get out of our office blocks in Manhattan and Geneva and Addis and Santiago and help grow an understanding that the UN is not some remote bureaucracy. We're all the UN. In an interconnected, interdependent world, everybody is the UN. And that also means not just us getting out and listening better. It also means bringing civil society, youth, business, local leaders much more into our buildings, much more into our decision-making processes. And I think that's going to be a key aspect of the reform. I think that's a key demand of how the UN can grow more inclusive. And I think the Secretary-General will come forward with very concrete suggestions in that regard. I mean, there's already been big progress in that. I mean, in my career in the United Nations of High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, which I served for close to 20 years, I saw during those two decades how the role of civil society actors changed dramatically and how they grew in voice in UNHCR. I think the more political parts of the UN still have some way to go to better integrate the voices of diverse stakeholders. But that, if we're to remain relevant, and that, if we're to remain to grow in impact, will be absolutely critical and no doubt will be the content of very concrete suggestions. The news headlines now. The High Commissioner for Human Rights has echoed concerns voiced by the UN Secretary-General about mob violence at the US Capitol building on Wednesday, which temporarily disrupted the confirmation of President-elect Joe Biden, condemning what she characterised as the destructive impact of sustained deliberate distortion of facts and incitement to violence and hatred by political leaders. Michelle Bachelet said that electoral fraud allegations had been made to try to undermine the right to political participation. The UN rights chief added that she was encouraged to see that senators had been able to resume their work. She called on political leaders, including the President of the United States, to disavow false and dangerous narratives and encourage their supporters to do so as well. At a scheduled press briefing in Geneva on Friday, spokesperson for the High Commissioner, Ravina Shamdasani, called out the insightful rhetoric that had encouraged supporters of President Trump to storm the US Capitol. 
We are concerned that some of the protesters were clearly displaying symbols of racial and ethnic hatred and white supremacy, including the Confederate flag, um, clothes displaying anti-Semitic logos, and a noose erected from across the uh, capital. We condemn this display of overtly racist symbols, and we call on all the political leaders to also condemn the use of such overtly racist symbols. To the Middle East now, where the Gulf Cooperation Council's declaration recognising the importance of unity among its members has been welcomed by the UN Secretary-General. The Gulf bloc's announcement comes after regional relations soured in 2017, when Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egypt severed diplomatic and economic ties with Qatar, alleging that it supported terrorist organisations, a claim that Qatar denied. In a statement issued by his office, Antonio Guterres expressed his gratitude to those from the region and beyond, including the late Emir of Kuwait and late Sultan of Oman, who he said had worked tirelessly towards resolving the Gulf Rift. The UN chief also welcomed the announcement on opening the airspace, land and sea borders between Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Egypt and Qatar. To the Central African Republic, CAR, where more than 200,000 people have fled their homes amid post-election violence. Raising the alert, the UN refugee agency UNHCR said that at least 30,000 had fled into neighbouring Cameroon, Chad, Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Republic of Congo. Tens of thousands more have been displaced inside the country, although many have already returned home, said UNHCR spokesperson Boris Chesyokov. The reasons why they move have been several. Most are linked to the fear of violence also as a preventative measure. In fact, especially for those who have stayed inside CAR, we have had reports that they're staying nearby home because they see this as a preventative measure until the situation calms. For those who have been arriving in countries, including in Cameroon, for one example, they do report to us in many cases that uh, they did witness violence and they have uh, pled because of that threat or because they heard that violence was nearby. Mr Chesyakov expressed concern over reports of human rights violations inside CAR linked to the December 27th presidential elections, while UNHCR urged governments in all neighbouring countries to continue granting asylum and to support local authorities to register new arrivals. The headlines there, and before that, the UN's Fabrizio Holzschild with insight about what people want and need and how the UN can help that happen. And on that note, I'm going to turn now to Solange Berhotegui-Cortez from the Information Service here at UN Geneva. So Solange, what were your thoughts about the survey? And if I might ask you, uh, as you're from Bolivia, from a Latin American standpoint, perhaps. Kamisaki, Daniel. Kamisaki. It means hello, hi in Aymara. In Aymara, that's that's an ethnic language from Bolivia? Yeah, it's an indigenous language in Bolivia and Peru. And I'm going to give you my reaction in a single word. And it is an Aymara word. It has 36 letters and 14 syllabs. And uh, I swear you, pronouncing it will be my first challenge of the year. Here I go. Wow, that's a hard act to follow, Solange. What does it mean? It's one of the longest words in the world. And that unique word means we are compelled to communicate. And yeah, it's. But I mean, surely, but it's a bit of. um, It's a bit contradictory that, though. It's one of the longest words in the world. It means we must communicate. 
and yet it's so <laughs> difficult to pronounce. I'm sure you've seen the irony there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really not easy to pronounce. I, I, I've been practicing. You know, as the Undersecretary General Fabrizio Hochschild likes to say, today, more than ever, the multilateralism has become a necessity. And I think this word resumes the spirit of the United Nations. We are all in this together. And without a quality communication, without dialogue between nations and cultures, we are not going to survive pandemics or neither to address the global challenges we face. And I was thinking that in 2045, I will be 74 years old. And I'm optimist, you know, Daniel, because I like to imagine a world with universal access to healthcare, education, water. And I am optimist for my children, but not only for my children, but for all the children. And I like to imagine a world where we talk together, we find solution together, we build together a world with nobody behind, an inclusive and peaceful world. So those are your expectations from the United Nations, not so different from what I think most people around the world want for themselves and for future generations. Exactly. And in that world that we, with an inclusive and peaceful world, with universal access to healthcare, etc., with the future we want, the leadership of the United Nations is essential. The UN is the place where words have to become actions. And words preserve stories, traditions, culture, and our memory. We must preserve indigenous languages because when an indigenous language disappears, the indigenous traditional knowledge, stories, legends, songs, values, and myths also disappears. And one of the key findings of UN 75 survey was that all regions identified climate change and environmental issues as a number one long-term global challenges and the indigenous people, they are particularly vulnerable to climate change. Solange, time is short. So from the Aymara greeting that you gave me, I'm sorry, I can't remember it. And I certainly can't try the 14 syllabled word with 36 letters from the Amara language. I'm not going to ask you to repeat it again unless you really want to. I'll just say thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you for your insight. Um, and I think really that brings us to the end of our show. So thank you, Solange, again, Behotege Cortes, for joining me for our weekly catch up. Thanks to listeners for your company. As I speak, Switzerland has just announced even tougher measures against COVID-19 with public venues, restaurants and gyms closed until at least the end of February. So wherever you are and whatever restrictions you're up against, good luck. And I hope to speak to you again next week for another episode of UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. My name is Daniel Johnson. Bye-bye.